Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. The following podcast is based on actual X-Files cases. Immorte non sono più soli. Okay, it's not yet the finally detailed insanity that you've come to expect from me. It's just a theory. Ellen? What if he's not doing this out of a psychotic impulse, but rather out of some physical hunger? I hope you're not online with some other guy. Maybe he needs to replenish this chemical deficiency in order to survive. I was just emailing my girlfriend. Your girlfriend? Yes. What about? From a dry skin sample, you're concluding what? That he's some kind of a fat-sucking vampire? This killer secretes a digestive substance which renders the victim's fat. Which he ingests before the rest of the body dissolves entirely. There are examples of this in nature, aren't there? Yeah, scorpions pre-digest their food outside of their body by regurgitating onto their prey. You're beautiful, Alan. You don't need to change for me. Please leave me alone. But I don't know too many scorpions who serve the internet. The dead are no longer lonely. Welcome back to X-Files Truth. Today's case is Too Shy, X-File number classified, but it is related to FBI crime lab numbers 458790 and 477498. Those numbers are printed on a file that Mulder hands Scully when they're investigating the case. The plot. In Cleveland, Ohio, A couple sit talking in a car at night, having met over the internet. The man, Virgil Encanto, impresses Lauren, his somewhat overweight date, until he suffocates her with a gelatinous substance that he spits up. The next morning, a policeman finds Lauren's body covered in the substance. Mulder and Scully are called in to investigate, as the victim's description seems similar to those of other victims of a Lonely Hearts killer still at large. Mulder, what do you think it is? A couple of months ago, a case came across my desk from the Mississippi office. Four women from Aberdeen had disappeared in less than a month. Disappeared? Only one of the victims was found, but her body was too decomposed to perform a viable autopsy. Mulder, what we just saw was not decomposition. I know. That's why I want you to find out what this is while you're at the coroner's office. What about you? Where are you going? I try to find out if Lauren McElvey was a lonely heart. Each of the Aberdeen victims had answered personal ads in the local papers. This is the same killer. He's just getting started. Scully attempts to perform an autopsy on Lauren's body, only to find that it is liquefied. Only a skeleton remains. Scully later discerns that the substance coating the body was a concentrated digestive enzyme and that the remains are lacking in adipose tissue, body fat. Encanto prowls an online chat room arranging to meet with a similarly overweight woman named Ellen Kaminsky. 
Encanto is interrupted by his landlord, who is romantically interested in him, Monica Landis, who believes he is a writer and who wants him to critique her poetry. He ignores her and resumes chatting. Elsewhere, Mulder learns that Larman met a man in a chat room and researches Encanto's internet accounts. They find that he started an account using a credit card taken from a previous victim. Kaminsky stands up in Canto while he waits at a restaurant. He leaves, murdering an overweight prostitute who injures him in the struggle. Encanto is forced to flee before he can fully dissolve the body. At the autopsy, Scully finds the body's airways are choked with the same substance that dissolved Lauren. Scully also finds the skin under the victim's nails contain no oils or fatty acids, convincing Mulder that the killer is sucking body fat from his victims. Plane just gave him a list from the university. How's it going over here? Good. We're just expanding the search to include the faculty rosters from the local community colleges. We... Oh. Excuse me. Sure. I'll let you know what we turn up. Did you find anything? Almost done with the list. That skin you found under the prostitute's fingernails? I had the crime lab check the DNA results against the known offenders database. And? What says you? They didn't find a match. No, but they did find something else. Check the next page where it's circled. The skin sample contains no oils or essential fatty acid. Mulder, there are any number of factors which could have caused that result. Where are you going with this? Okay, it's not yet the finely detailed insanity that you've come to expect from me. It's just a theory. But what if he's not doing this out of a psychotic impulse, but rather out of some physical hunger? Maybe he needs to replenish this chemical deficiency in order to survive. From a dry skin sample, you're concluding what? That he's some kind of a fat-sucking vampire? I don't know how else to explain Lauren McElvey's missing adipose. And I bet if you checked the Aberdeen victims, you'd find exactly the same thing. This killer secretes a digestive substance which renders the victims fat. Which he ingests before the rest of the body dissolves entirely. There are examples of this in nature, aren't there? Yeah, scorpions pre-digest their food outside of their body by regurgitating onto their prey. But I don't know too many scorpions who serve the Internet. Okay, but if I'm right, then we're not just looking for a serial murderer. We're looking for some kind of genetically different human being, a creature who may be responsible for who knows how many missing persons cases throughout the United States. Mulder finds passages of obscure medieval poetry in Encanto's emails and compiles a list of people who would have access to the texts from which these were taken. The agents, along with Cleveland detective Alan Cross, agree to canvas everyone on the list. Meanwhile, Encanto, a translator of medieval Italian literature, receives a package while talking to Monica and her blind daughter, Jessie. He receives an email from Kaminsky asking to arrange another meeting. He's also questioned by Cross. Returning home with Kaminsky, Encanto invites her inside, but leaves when he sees someone is in the apartment. The landlord has come around with her poetry and discovers Cross in the bathtub. Encanto kills her. Later, her daughter asks if Encanto has seen her. He says no, but the blind girl smells her mother's perfume and calls the police. Mr. Encanto? What is it, Jesse? Um, do you know where my mom is? Your mother? No. She takes a class down at St. Frank's tonight. A poetry class, and 
She was supposed to be home over an hour ago. I'm sure she'll be home soon. She didn't stop by to say hi or anything? No, not tonight. Okay. Thanks. She'll probably be home soon. I'm going to New York for a few days on business. Don't worry about your mother. I'm sure she'll be fine. When they arrive, Encanto is gone, but his computer gives a list of women that he's been in contact with. Only two are unreachable, one being Kaminsky. Encanto goes to Kaminsky's home. She lets him in and slips off to email her friend. After she sends the email, she receives an email from the FBI, a facial composite, and recognizes it as Encanto, who then attacks her after he sees the email in the reflection. Ellen? I hope you're not online with some other guy. I was just emailing my girlfriend. Your girlfriend? Yes. What about? Us. What were you telling her? Just how happy I am. That you're still interested in me. And that you hadn't rejected me like I thought you had. Mulder and Scully arrive at Kaminsky's apartment, and Mulder chases a suspect in the alleyway who turns out to be innocent while Scully remains. Scully finds Kaminsky injured but alive, and then she is also attacked by Encanto. However, as they struggle, Kaminsky retrieves Scully's gun and fires on Encanto, wounding him. Later, during questioning, a visibly weakened Encanto admits to the Lonely Heart's killings. He claims to have given his victims what they had wanted, stating in Latin and in English, the dead are no longer lonely. Jennifer Flackett, Kathy Miller, Hillary Turk, 47 women reported missing in five states. At least give their families some peace of mind and tell us how many are on that list because of you. They're all mine. Come on, Scully. Open the door. Why? When you look at me, you see a monster. But I was just feeding hunger. You're more than a monster. 
You didn't just feed on their bodies, you fed on their minds. My weakness was no greater than theirs. I gave them what they wanted. They gave me what I needed. Not anymore. I morte non sono più soli. The dead are no longer lonely. Let me out. Now for my field report for Too Shy. I didn't really like Too Shy that much. It was okay, it was a watchable episode definitely, and it had some strong points, especially the last scene. I kind of like that scene the best. It, it's kind of an eerie scene with Encanto sitting there, and usually Scully gets freaked out when she's you know, trapped in a jail cell or room with a criminal. It kind of brings back that beyond the sea feel with Luther Boggs that happens a few times in the X-Files when Scully's in the room. This time she doesn't freak out as much and she gets to say her piece to Encanto so that was pretty good. Also the crimes get wrapped up with Encanto admitting to the crimes when they show him that list and I also like how Encanto looks like he's starting to you know change into the monster that he really is. So he's pretty scary looking and when he's chanting in Latin and everything like that. It kind of brings back the feel of the exorcist. So it's got like a little exorcist twist at the end of it. But other than that, through throughout the whole episode, I wasn't totally into it. So I'd give it probably a 4 on a scale of, you know, 1 to 10 as far as X-Files go. More like a 6 or 7 if it was on TV. You know, it's still better than a lot of TV shows. Compared to other Monsters of the Week, it's, um, you know, definitely below average. It is... A good example of what a monster of the week actually is for the X-Files. This isn't just a strange case or something. He's actually a certain type of a monster, so monster of the week definitely fits. For the sequelizer, this actually has a medium potential for a sequel because Encanto is still alive. He's in jail and he probably will starve because he's not going to get his primary food source, most likely. Although I guess that would make it the medium potential if he gets to a guard or something and somehow escapes. So it's got a medium to high potential now that I think about it. He is alive and his food source is all around him. So that's what I have for Too Shy. Now let's head down to the chem lab and see what Agent Chelsea has for the chemistry between Mulder and Scully for Too Shy. Agent Chelsea here. This week's episode is Too Shy. It's a Monster of the Week episode, and now yes, we know this show was done in the 90s, but this episode truly shows its date with the internet. This episode is okay, um, but there are only a few favorite scenes of mine. 
The first one I really like is when uh, Scully comes in to do the autopsy. Detective Cross is there, obviously waiting for someone to take possession of the body, and he's confused as to why Scully is there. He's surprised that she's a medical doctor. Now, I'm sorry, I'm probably going to go on a rant here, but it just irks me when he says, I guess I'm just old-fashioned in certain regards. And the same when he says, I'm not sexist, I'm just being honest. First, yuck, yes you are being sexist, you're just not being honest about it. I know that it was a struggle back then for male agents who are still adjusting to the fact that female agents even existed, but I didn't like that he insinuated that Scully would have a problem with it being a case where the killer had a problem with women or was after women. Turned around, would it have been a problem with, would he have had a problem with a female killer killing off men? Probably not. So it's silly to assume the other way. The reason why I bring this up is because I love how Scully handles this situation. She's obviously been in before. She just stares at him, looks him in the eye, and doesn't back down, and doesn't give in to what he's saying. He eventually moves on and leaves her alone. Yeah, you go, girl. Now, as much as I loved Scully in this episode, I really have to hand it to Mulder and his investigative work. He knows of the previous cases, and he figures out just quite what this guy is doing to all these women. He even figures out how to link him and figure out who he is with the Italian poems. Overall, these agents really get the job done. Now, even though Cross made it clear that he didn't think Scully should be there or working on the case, he eventually accepts that she is an agent and that's what she's there to do, you know, her job. This is really shown in the scene where the agents finally come up with a list of people who have access to the Italian poems. Detective Cross tells Mulder and Scully that they came up with a full list and that they want to start dividing people up. Scully looks him in the eye again and says, I'd like to debrief them if that's okay with you. He looks at her for a minute and says, sure. Not in a mean way, just in a, okay, I've accepted you kind of way. Now, later on, when the detectives and agents are at Mr. Encanto's apartment, Scully is getting a statement from the daughter of the landlord, Jesse, who we met earlier. To me, this scene shows exactly why there should be female agents partnered up with male agents. I agree that at times, the male agents are faster, stronger, and can chase after criminals a lot easier, but in moments like this, when you have a scared girl who just lost her mother, you need someone with compassion who can be comforting and put the person at ease, and you'll more likely get that from a female agent. So I kind of like this transition throughout the episode. I don't know if that was the writer's intention, but I like how it starts with the detective doubting that she should be on the case and having it end up with her proving exactly why she should. Pretty cool. And that's it for me. I'm going to rate this episode 2.5 out of 5, Not that it was a bad episode, but it's just not amazing. It's kind of an average monster of the week. Not one I would necessarily go back and watch on its own or anything. What were your thoughts on the episode? Let us know at xfilestruthatlive.com.
Counterintelligence. Inside information. This is Agent Stone with Counterintelligence with X 3.6 Too Shy. Original air date November 3rd, 1995. Written by Jeffrey Vlaming. Directed by David Nutter. I don't know too many scorpions that surf the internet. Too Shy, the Lick Me Kill Me episode. A fat sucking vampire man lacking essential oils and fatty acids who regurgitates digestive enzymes while spouting 16th century Italian Renaissance poetry while preying on women as a lonely hearts type in the early days of internet chat rooms. What great fun! Virgil Encanto's name evokes the Italian Renaissance poets he translates. In Dante Alighieri's Inferno, the poet's guide through the seen circles of hell is the Roman poet Virgil. The terza rima verses, a rhyme scheme that Dante invented, are divided into long sections called cantos. One of the titles Mulder reels off to Detective Cross is La Vita Nuova, or The New Life, one of Dante's more famous books. Durante Degli Alighieri, simply referred to as Dante, 1265-1321, was a major Italian poet of the Middle Ages. His divine comedy, originally called Commedia and later called Divina by Boccaccio, is widely considered the greatest literary work composed in the Italian language and a masterpiece of world literature. In Italy, he is known as Il Sommo Poeta, the Supreme Poet, or just Il Poeta. He, Petrarch, and Boccaccio are also known as the Three Fountains or the Three Crowns. Dante is also called the father of the Italian language. The Divine Comedy describes Dante's journey through Hell, Inferno, Purgatory, Purgatorio, and Paradise, Paradiso. Guided first by the Roman poet Virgil, and then by Beatrice, the subject of his love, and of another of his works, La Vita Nuova. While the vision of hell, the inferno, is vivid for modern readers, the theological niceties presented in the other books require a certain amount of patience and knowledge to appreciate. Purgatorio, the most lyrical and human of the three, also has the most poets in it. Paradiso, the most heavily theological, has the most beautiful and ecstatic mystic passages in which Dante tries to describe what he confesses he is unable to convey. For example, when Dante looks into the face of God, al alta fantasia che manco posa, at this high moment, ability failed my capacity to describe. With its seriousness of purpose, its literary stature and the range, both stylistically and subject-wise, of its content, the comedy soon became a cornerstone in the evolution of Italian as an established literary language. Dante was more aware than most earlier Italian writers of the variety of Italian dialogues and of the need to create a literature and a unified literary language beyond the limits of Latin writing at the time. In that sense, he is a forerunner of the Renaissance with its effort to create vernacular literature in competition with earlier classical writers. Dante's in-depth knowledge within the limits of his time of Roman antiquity and his evident admiration for some aspects of pagan Rome also point forward to the 15th century. 
Ironically, while he was widely honored in the centuries after his death, the comedy slipped out of fashion among men of letters, too medieval, too rough, and tragic, and not stylistically refined in the respects that the high and late Renaissance came to demand of literature. Other famous Italian poets include Giacomo Leopardi, Primo Levi, Anna Poetti, and Salvatore Quasimodo. Other famous Renaissance poets include, among others, John Doan, Christopher Marlowe, Sir Walter Raleigh, and William Shakespeare. A personal or personal ad is an item or notice traditionally in the newspaper similar to a classified advertisement but personal in nature. In British English, it is also commonly known as an advert in a Lonely Hearts column. With its rise in popularity, the World Wide Web has also become a common medium for personals commonly referred to as online dating. Personals are generally meant to generate romance, friendship, or casual and sometimes sexual encounters, and usually include a basic description of the person posting it and their interests. Newspapers and magazines that take personal advertisements often provide a reply forwarding service. In this case, the text of the advert will include a unique box number, and anyone wishing to reply to the advert sends or delivers the reply to the publisher's address in an envelope bearing that number. The publisher forwards replies in bulk to the advertiser at a given interval, for example, each week. Another method of replying to Lonely Hearts adverts is via telephone. This took off with the introduction of premium rate telephone numbers, providing an additional way for the publisher to generate money. The usual business model is for the advertiser to be enticed to place an advert free of charge using an 800 number or equivalent. And those replying, and also the advertiser when they want to check for any replies, must use a premium rate line. Due to newspaper prices being based on characters or lines of text, a jargon of abbreviations, acronyms, and code words arose in personals and have often carried over to the internet. So, where did personal ads for singles first originate from, and who placed the first personal ad? Well, a little research points to the fact that it was the good old UK. The story is of a lonely lady in Manchester Way back in 1727, who, like most people, was just looking for a little love. Such was her anguish at being lonely that she persuaded a local newspaper, the Manchester Weekly Journal, to write a tiny advertisement stating that she was looking for someone nice to share her life with. Not much wrong with that. Unfortunately, however, for Helen Morrison, it was not long before the ad was reported, and she was hauled up to face the mayor of the Manchester city, who quickly had her committed to an institution for unbalanced people. The report is documented by the People's Almanac and goes as follows: In 1727, Helen Morrison, a lonely spinster, became the first woman to place a Lonely Hearts advertisement. It appeared in the Manchester Weekly Journal. The mayor promptly committed her to a lunatic asylum for four weeks. Personal ads have a history going back at least 300 years, according to a new book on the subject entitled "Classified: The Secret History of the Personal Column" from Random House in 2009. Internet dating is just the modern version of the first matrimonial agencies of the 1700s, which helped lonely bachelors search for wives through printed ads," said author H. G. Cox. A history lecturer at the University of Nottingham, UK. In between, the social acceptance of personal ads has waxed and waned with the times. Advertising for a husband or wife has always attracted criticism, and the people who did it were always thought of as failures in some way. However, advertising like this 
has a long and unbroken history and was used by many people with some success, Cox said. It only took a few decades after the invention of the modern newspaper for the new medium to become a way for people to meet in Britain. Matrimonial agencies were big business there by the early 18th century, printing ads on behalf of men who paid the agency to recruit them a good wife. Being single past the age of 21 was considered almost shameful in that era, and the ads were often a last resort for the men who advertised and the women who read them. If a match resulted, it is unlikely that you boasted the facts to your friends, Cox said. You probably wouldn't talk about it if you were very respectable, he said. The personal section of those 18th century newspapers were also useful for gay men and women to meet lovers back when homosexuality was still illegal. Personal ads went mainstream in the early 20th century with expectations at a much lower level than their earlier incarnations. Many of the postings were simply calls for friends or pen pals becoming especially popular among single servicemen called lonely soldiers during World War I. At that time, advertising for pals or for lonely soldiers was fashionable and contemporary, something done by those who were, as they put in their ads, bohemian and unconventional, Cox said. Personals died away again until the 1960s when ads became part of the growing counterculture in the UK, along with drug experimentation in the Beatles, the author explains. Like the latter, though, it took some time for the personal ad to be accepted by the mom-and-pop public. In Britain, the personal column was suspected, much like the internet is now, of harboring all sorts of scams, perversities, and dangerous individuals. At least that is what the police tended to think, and they only stopped prosecuting Lonely Hearts ads in the late 1960s. Until then, they often thought that they were mainly placed by prostitutes and gay men, Cox said. Digestive enzymes are enzymes that break down polymeric molecules into their smaller building blocks in order to facilitate their absorption by the body. Digestive enzymes are found in the digestive tracts of animals, including humans, and in the traps of carnivorous plants, where they aid in the digestion of food, as well as inside cells, especially in their lysosomes, where they function to maintain cellular survival. Digestive enzymes are diverse and are found in the saliva secreted by the salivary glands, in the stomach secreted by cells lining the stomach, in the pancreatic juice secreted by pancreatic exocrine cells, and in the intestinal small and large secretions, or as part of the lining of the gastrointestinal tract. Digestive enzymes are classified based on their target substrates. Proteases and peptidases split proteins into small peptides and amino acids. Lipases split fat into three fatty acids and a glycerol molecule. Carbohydrates split carbohydrates such as starch and sugars into simple sugars such as glucose. Nucleases split nucleic acids into nucleotides. In the human digestive system, the main sites of digestion are the oral cavity, the stomach, and the small intestine. Digestive enzymes are secreted by different exocrine glands including salivary glands, secretory glands in the stomach, pancreas, and glands in the small intestines. In the word of the X-Files, this is all plausible, and I'd say that this case is most definitely probable. So, the final word on Too Shy, they're all mine.
What's out there for Too Shy? First review comes from Musings of an X-File. And the reason why I chose this is because the first line, I immediately knew that this review would be very much similar to my review. Um, and it and Musings does talk about the feminist theme kind of throughout the episode. While it necessarily tried to have a feminist theme, sometimes it did flop a little bit. Um, but I was actually pleased to find that a lot of reviews discussed this issue throughout the episode, and I kind of like that a lot because I was hoping that I wasn't the only one who was seeing this. Um, so here's what I took from this review. Overall, writer Jeffrey Vlaming does a good job of depicting various degrees of womanhood. We have the desperately annoying, as depicted in the Monica character. She was so bad I was actually relieved when Encanto killed her. The phrase, he's just not that into you, comes to mind. Then there's Ellen, the haltingly insecure. It's her story we're really invited to empathize with. Of course, there are prostitutes who are, well, prostitutes. Finally, there's Dr. Scully, who can still do no wrong. And because it's hard to elevate women without demeaning mankind, her meager nemesis, poor Detective Cross, isn't given a single redeeming feature. Somehow, I still like him, though. I suspect Scully feels the same way, judging from her sympathetic reaction to his death. Now, we have a smart woman up against a foolish man and some vulnerable woman up against a man with inhuman powers. Add the meta-narrative to Scully's struggle with the backward detective cross, and you have something that's a little ham-fisted with its message at moments. It's hard to believe a detective out of the 1990s would be so shocked that a woman could be a medical doctor. What's next, a black astronaut? Gasp! Whatever the excuse they had to drum up to showcase it, it was nice to see Scully handle herself with such grace and good to see the X-Files infused with estrogen. There's no intention to be condescending or potentially offensive. In fact, I think this episode was written in praise of womanhood. Out of the three men of any consequence in this episode, one of them is vile, one is stupid, and the other is Mulder. The women, on the other hand, represented by Ellen, empower themselves and eventually take revenge on the not-as-suave-as-he-thinks Mr. Encanto. That's why Scully is left to confront the villain in the final showdown, and why Ellen is the one who gives him his just reward. There can be no complaints here about Mulder riding in as the White Knight to save Scully at the end of the episode. In this one, the women save themselves. Now, I really like what was said here. Um, and I think I, I got the intention that the writer was having with this episode. He was definitely writing it as a positive towards women, definitely not towards a negative, um, although it can be kind of very easily taken that way. Um, I think the writer did try his best to, to praise women and try to get them to, um, maybe see something that was quite dangerous at that time and maybe show that they could take control and they could, um, empower themselves. And I think it was to its time, a good episode. Um, I did, (laughs) I did like the little comment about 
a detective in the 1990s being so shocked. But I guess because the agent was a little older and it was still kind of in the transition. So I guess I understand. Um, but it was nice to see that Scully wasn't saved by Mulder, but that the victim got to take control and kill the person who was trying to kill her. That was really great. The next review comes from Couch Potato. Too Shy is one of those episodes that are oddly fun to watch, even though they aren't actually great episodes. Some sort of guilty pleasure appeal this episode has, even though it's quite flawed and standard. Overall, this episode will remind you of such episodes as Irresistible, The Host, and Squeeze, but not necessarily as great as them in either construction, delivery, or its gross monster. What basically starts as quite gory and shallow monster killing a woman in a car at night thing, which is still good to watch, the episode turns into this typical chase involving many single female characters who lack any character development or interest because they are underdeveloped and are just there to serve the purpose of fodder to his mutant killer. Encanto is no fluke man, tombs, or fasfer, but he appears equally gross and is quite sadistic. There is, however, no in-depth appeal to him throughout the episode, but you are somewhat stricken by the encounter he has with Scully where he puts up his instinctual needs in quite good words. But still, he is not much creepy on the whole, and his target lacks anything anything substantial. The gory, gross, and scary monster is what you'll have fun watching the most. Not a complete train wreck, still one of the better standard monster of the week episodes now i i don't think that if this is necessarily a terrible episode it kind of leads you to believe but i mean it isn't as great obviously as like tombs and squeeze and irresistible and whatnot um but i think it's mainly because the writer might have been focusing on a uh message underneath all of it and that might have taken away it from the focus of the gross factor and just kind of trying to really creep people out. Um, but yeah, I mean, it tried, it tried to gross, gross everyone out with the, the skin tearing off and, you know, all the sucking of the adipose. Ugh, gross. Um, (laughs) so I guess there is some sort of gross factor there. All right. And that is what's out there for Too Shy. Character Profiles Profiles in Character This week's profile, The Stupendous Yappy, as portrayed by Jop Broker. This week we will take a small step back and big step forward by visiting the character of the Stupendous Yappy, whom we just saw in Clyde Buckman's Final Repose, and we will see again in an upcoming episode later this season. 
1995, Yappy appeared in tabloid newspaper Midnight Inquisitor. The publication's front page included an image of his face and an article titled The Stupendous Yappy's Foreseeable Futures. In the article, he made several predictions that were listed under the subheading I Foresee. These foretellings included a rocky romantic affair between superstar Madonna and super witness Cato Kalin, public disclosure that a coffeehouse chain uses narcotics in their brewing process, and that sales at the cafes will plummet, but only for a day or two. Author J.D. Salinger finally publishing a new novel and hitting the talk show circuit to promote it, exposure of the real reason for the 1983 U.S. invasion on Grenada, causing future historians to regard this military action as the most significant moment of the 20th century, and the revelation that not Elvis, but rather Buddy Holly, is still alive, having faked his own death so many years ago. Holly will not only re-emerge, but also regroup with the crickets, and they will headline in next year's Lala Palazzo. Yappi worked on a case with a policeman who found the celebrity to be very spooky. Prior to September 19, 1995. Shortly before that date, Yappi was requested by an officer named Klein to assist with a recent murder case in North Minneapolis. Rumors of Yappi's involvement in the case soon developed, and on September 19th, Yappi was indirectly discussed by Klein and another police officer, Javez, in the room where the murder had occurred. Even though Javez was worried that the celebrity was reportedly somewhat unorthodox, Klein tried to assure Javez that Yappi was supposedly an expert at helping out with murder investigations and came highly recommended. Javez then sarcastically cited one of Yappi's television appearances that he himself had seen as an example of the celebrity's esteemed recommendation, and the same policeman who had previously worked with Yappi, now working as a photographer, soon joined the conversation, recalling the celebrity's spookiness on the earlier case. Klein was prepared to admit that Yappi was a publicity hound, but revealed that he was willing to accept both that fact and the kookiness of the celebrity as long as Yappy gave them leads on the case. The investigator's discussion about Yappy was interrupted by the arrival of FBI agents Mulder and Scully. Yappy himself arrived shortly thereafter, surrounded by an entourage that included a crowd of excited fans who were allowed only so far as a corridor outside the room before being led away by police, and a glamorous personal assistant who followed him into the room. Yappy wore black sunglasses, and as he entered the room but took them off moments after entering, and was dazzled by the photographer taking a picture of him. Klein began to thank Yappy for coming down to the crime scene, but was quietened by the celebrity who claimed he was seeing visions of the killer. Implying that he believed the killer was a male, Yappy supported that the killer did not feel as if he was in control of his own life, and that this highly important fact was the reason the murderer killed. Yappy described the criminal as a white man who possibly had facial hair and a tattoo somewhere on his body, also suggesting that the tattoo might have the facial hair. Crouching down low to the floor, the supposed psychic claimed he could see the killer there, forcing himself on the victim, but being unable to perform and consequently taking out his rage. A frustrated Yappy then abruptly announced that his vision had ended due to what he deemed negative energy in the room. Although he initially approached Scully and studied her up close, he then moved to Mulder. Yappy doubted Mulder when the FBI agent claimed to be a believer in psychic ability, and Mulder eventually left the room due to Yappy's insistence that the FBI agent was emitting negative energy. 
Yappy bent a pin belonging to Klein, and applause concluded the celebrity's examination of the crime scene. As he left the room, he excused himself, mentioning that he had an interview to give. He passed Mulder on the way out of the room and told Mulder that he himself was sickened by skeptics such as the FBI agent. After Mulder asked the celebrity to read a certain thought, Yappy slightly jumped back in shock and remarked that the same thought was true of Mulder's old man. Yappy then left the crime scene, still annoyed with Mulder and followed by his glamorous assistant. Upon Mulder returning to the room, Scully told him that he had missed quite a performance. Mulder guesstimated that Yappy had proclaimed the victim's body would be found near water, had seen a church or school in the vicinity, and had experienced a flash of the letter S and or number 7. Klein neither confirmed nor denied Mulder's speculations and instead asked him to clarify his point. Both Mulder and Scully seemed to be of the opinion that Yappy's leads were so vague as to be practically useless, yet easily interpreted to be correct after the fact, and that by percentage, some of the many things Yappy had said were bound to be correct. Klein was convinced, however, that Yappy had provided more solid leads on the case than the agents had, and based on the celebrity's predictions, Klein prepared to conduct a search for an impotent white male aged 17 to 34 with possibly a beard and or tattoo. After Clyde Bruckman found the killer's first victim in a dumpster, Klein noted to agents Mulder and Scully that Yappy had seen the first victim's body would be dumped somewhere. The FBI agents were still not convinced that Yappy was a reliable source, and Mulder ridiculed Klein's belief that the correlation between the celebrity's prediction and finding the body in a dumpster was creepy. Shortly thereafter, Mulder came to believe that Clyde Bruckman was actually psychic, but after Bruckman threw up, apparently in reaction to experiencing a psychic vision in the same room that Yappy had earlier examined, Scully voiced her opinion that Bruckman was performing the same routine as Yappy, only in a different style. Bruckman's finding at the crime scene did support some of Yappy's predictions, such as the fact that the killer felt like he was not in control of his own life, although Bruckman admitted that this was true of mostly everyone, and that the victim had had sex with her killer in exactly the same spot where Yappy had said the killer and his victim had been having sex. However, Bruckman purported that the killer not only felt like he was out of control, but also thought of himself as a puppet, and that his victim had not been raped by her killer, but had rather entirely instigated their sexual encounter. Unlike Yappy, Bruckman could not ascertain what the killer looked like, and was unfamiliar with negative energy, but was able to correctly ascertain that the victim was floating in Glenview Lake, and that she would be found there on the following morning. In 1995, Yappy appeared in a televised commercial that advertised his hotline. In this advertisement, Yappy stated, Do you want to know the future? Do you want to know what lies ahead? Then call me, the stupendous Yappy. For years, I have entertained audiences with my psychic abilities. I have been consulted by Hollywood stars, police departments, even presidents. Now, I can be your personal psychic consultant. Do you want to know if you will get that promotion? Do you want to know if your marriage will be successful? Do you want to know where you will meet your one true love? Then call me at 1-900-555-YAPP. Remember, the future is close at hand, and so is your phone. So to hear tomorrow's secrets today, just pick it up. I know you will. I can see your future. This advertisement also included on-screen text that read, The Stupendous Yappy Personal Forecast, 1-900-555-YAPP. 3.99 per minute for adults and entertainment only. 
The advertisement was shown on television one night shortly after the deaths of Clyde Bruckman, Officer Havez, and the killer himself, the latter having been shot to death by Scully. On the night it was shown, the commercial was immediately preceded by the end of a black-and-white film that had been released by 20th Century Fox Film Corporation. Scully watched the advertisement and was about to call Yappy's hotline, but ultimately threw her telephone at the television in frustration. In about 1996, Yappy hosted Dead Alien, Truth or Humbug, pictured on the documentary's front cover next to a label that read, Hosted by the Stupendous Yappy. During the documentary, he asked the viewer whether footage that seemed to be from an alien autopsy was indeed actually from such an autopsy, or on the other hand, simply a well-made hoax. After continuing to talk to the viewer, Yappy's voice was later overdubbed onto footage of the mysterious procedure. While Mulder could be seen standing near the ongoing operation without his face being captured on camera, Yappy wondered aloud about the identity of the mysterious man who seemed to be overseeing the procedure and asked of a masked Scully what secret government agency she worked for. Job Proker was David Duchovny's stand-in on The X-Files before being approached by writer Darren Morgan, who thought of the actor when writing the character of the stupendous Yappy for the Clyde Bruckman episode. Yappy and Broker were both brought back subsequently and in another Morgan-pinned episode where we will see him next in Jose Chung's From Outer Space. Checked your email? I found these in my email this morning. And now the female with the emails, Agent Chelsea. All right, everyone. If you guys want to let us know how we did or how you liked the episode, feel free to email us at xfilestruth at live.com or you can check out our Facebook page by searching Files Truth Podcast and like our timeline. We did get a post on our Facebook this week. Hi, Agents Chelsea and Summer. I recently listened to the Season 2 Shipper Special. Excellent job, and it was really fun to hear about those top 10 Shipper moments. I agree with Summer about the One Breath episode and Mulder's feelings for Scully. I think he does realize that he strongly cares about her, but not yet necessarily in the love territory. And the scene with the barbecue sauce in Red Museum is always a fun little moment. Thank you, Angela, for writing that. We're so glad that you went back and listened to that. And I hope that you enjoyed season one as well. And I'm kind of looking forward to going through season three because I feel like there's going to be a lot more to talk about. So thank you so much for posting our Facebook page. If you guys want to do that as well, you can comment on any of the episodes or just the podcast in general. We love hearing from you guys in all different ways. You can also leave us a review on iTunes. Scroll to the bottom and give us a out of five stars rating. And write a little bit about why you like the podcast and why you think people should listen to it. Um, it really helps us when people search for The X-Files. They'll see our podcast right at the top if we have a lot of great reviews. You can also comment on our website, which is xfilestruth.com. And there you can actually find all the information that we talk about on the podcast as well as songs that are played. And we did get a comment this week 
from Agent A. The List is one of those X-Files episodes, and sometimes we all have one of those days. Thanks for using my song suggestion. I was admittedly stoked to find out. Like Agent Chelsea, I was surprised to learn this episode won a directorial award because I find it pretty forgettable compared to many other episodes. Love the fan audio recording idea. Count me in, and I will make a concerted effort to make time to send one in. Until next time, Agent A. Thank you so much, Agent A. Uh, We look forward to your fan audio recording, and we're happy to use song suggestions. Like I said, feel free to send more in. I know Shadow absolutely will accept ideas and whatnot. So thank you all for writing in, and we hope to hear from you all soon. On X-Files Truth, another failed suicide attempt by a patient at a military hospital piques Mulder's interest with the talk of a phantom soldier who can walk where no man can walk, sees the Gulf War veterans no matter where they hide, and seems to know all their secrets. Lots of files. Lots and lots of files. Files from X-Files. We recently asked listeners to send MP3 files about their X-Files fan story. Our first file is from Agent Angela. Angela's file is a great way to kick off our new segment, Files from X-Files. Here's Agent Angela. Hello, agents. This is Agent Angela. X-Files Truth has called for some audio fan stories. This is mine. I first saw the X-Files on the night the pilot premiered, September 5th, 1993. It was two weeks after my 12th birthday. For the previous four years, give or take, I'd already been a devoted paranormal show watcher. Up until the X-Files, I watched Unsolved Mysteries, Sightings, reruns of the original In Search of, The Twilight Zone, and any other movie or TV documentary I could find that dealt with unexplained phenomena. I just happened upon an Unsolved Mysteries episode one day while changing channels, and that was it. The stories and subject matter completely riveted me. They still do. I watched the entire X-Files series all through middle school, high school, and after. First on Fridays, and then on Sundays. I think I could count the number of episodes I missed the first time on one hand. It was the thing I looked forward to most all week. When was the last time you went on a date? Never mind that. I'm with my soulmate now, and that's what matters. 
While I was growing up, my family had no internet until I was in high school, not uncommon at the time, so I was not aware of any online X-File fandom until I was about 15. I visited show forums here and there, but they were pretty basic compared to the X-File universe that's alive and well across social media today, which I think is just awesome. As a teenager, I could not have conceived of all the different social media we have now that's keeping the X-File fandom going strong. I like to say I'm young enough to navigate it well, but old enough to have a sense of wonder at it. One early vivid X-File memory I have is of Scully's abduction in the Dwayne Barry and Ascension episodes. During the week between that two-parter, I probably got as much sleep as Mulder, as in hardly any. I identify the most with Agent Mulder and a bit with Agent Layla Harrison from later seasons. Agent Harrison's also my avatar on the X-Files news forum. I post there once, maybe twice a week on average. This quote from Mulder in the pilot episode especially connects with me. At first it looked like a garbage dump for UFO sightings, alien abduction reports, the kind of stuff that most people laugh at as being ridiculous. But I was fascinated. I read all the cases I could get my hands on, hundreds of them. I read everything I could about paranormal phenomena, about the occult. And... You and me both, buddy. Just like Mulder, I've had a consuming fascination with the unexplained that's never let up. I've read, watched, and listened to almost any and everything I've run across about it. I could go into more detail about that, but we'd be here for a while. Particularly UFO abduction cases have always had me transfixed, so that part of the X-Files mythology has always been meaningful. In 2007, I introduced my now fiancé to the X-Files not long after we moved in together. That particular rewatch was so much fun because it was like I was seeing each episode all over again for the first time with a new set of eyes. X-Files rewatches are a standard activity in this household. It's very hard for me to name a single favorite episode, but several off the top of my head are Conduit, One Breath, Postmodern Prometheus, Dreamland, Triangle, Arcadia, The Rain King, Field Trip, Malegro, All Things, and Millennium. I also count myself as extraordinarily lucky to have seen Fight the Future in the movie theater in 1998. Anyone think the Titanic movie a year earlier was a big deal? It was nothing in my mind compared to the Sex Files movie. I want to believe was exciting to see, but Fight the Future is still my favorite out of the two. At the end of this July, we'll be packing up the camera and heading to Vancouver, BC for some X-File location tripping. I'll be posting photos on my Flickr page, which you'll be able to find at AgentAngela1013, all one word. I'll keep you guys at the podcast updated as that time gets closer. I am so excited for this trip. Thanks for listening. Until next time, this is Agent Angela. Thanks, Agent Angela. We love hearing how Files got interested in the X-Files and about your other interests, too. We'd love to hear how the rest of you got into the X-Files or any other X-Files related stories you have. Just record your story and send the MP3 to us at xfilestruth at live.com and I'll put it on the next episode. Well, that wraps up the case for Too Shy. Remember to email us, xfilestruth at live.com and check out the website, xfilestruth.com. And please let us know your X-Files story, how you got involved with the X-Files or how you got interested or any X-Files story that you have. Just record yourself 
using a program like Audacity, you can download that for free. I think GarageBand for Mac, things like that. And just send us that MP3 and we'll put it on the next show. So for Agent Chelsea, Agent Stone, and Agent M, this is Agent Shadow. And we will see you next month for The Walk. That one, puppies? I made this. 20th century fox. Do you want to know the future? Do you want to know what lies ahead? Then call me the stupendous Yappy. For years I have entertained audiences with my psychic abilities. I have been consulted by Hollywood stars, police departments, even presidents. Now I can be your personal psychic consultant. Do you want to know if you will get that promotion? Do you want to know if your marriage will be successful? Do you want to know where you will meet your one true love? Then call me at 1-900-555-YAPP. Remember, the future is close at hand, and so is your phone. So to hear tomorrow's secrets today, just pick it up. I know you will. I can see your future. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.